All right. Uh, welcome, everybody. This is The Social Brain, episode 20. Can't believe that. Um, uh, today, we're talking about something really cool. It is, as you might tell from the title of this episode, connecting the mind and the body, something to do with collective cellular intelligence. And this has a lot to do with the name of Taylor's channel, The Cellular Republic. And we're going to get into all that and um, cybernetics and some other really <laughs> big, big think stuff. So uh, stick with us. This will be a fun episode. Yeah, this is a uh, this has kind of been a pet project of mine for almost a decade now. Uh, back in undergrad, when I was studying biology, when I was also studying kind of like sociology and political theory and all of these things, I really saw a lot of these these parallels between you know the the biological system that's made up of trillions of cells each of these cells being a living thing that has kind of its own goal to stay alive, but is also part of this collective. They're part of tissues, they're part of organs and organ systems. Uh, and when you look at society, society is, is kind of this organismal thing too. We're, we're made up of millions of people that are all kind of trying to achieve their individual goals, but are part of this collective. There's healthcare systems, there's police forces, there's all of these different types of systems that kind of make up the collective. And I really started to follow the, the thread of, of control, of trying to understand kind of how, what the mind is, what it's responsible for in this kind of biological system that's made up of trillions and trillions of living things. And so I think today what I want you to do is, I mean, think about this from this metaphorical perspective, but in a way that, that really kind of transforms the way you think about your relationship with your body. Because that's ultimately what I, I want to challenge a lot of people to do is to I think we in this modern world, in this chaotic modern world where we're just constantly trying to accomplish things, right? We're so busy these days and we're stuck in our head. We're ruminating all the time. You have the philosopher Alan Watts said, people that think all the time have nothing to think about except for thought, right? And it's usually English, right? And we talked a lot on the show about how our body doesn't speak English. And when we're, when we're so caught up in our head in this cognitive state, we kind of forget about our internal world and think about like, what are these signals that our body is sending us? What do they mean? Uh, because it's not in English, it's in a different type of communication, but it's these systems in our body sending us as the mind, some type of signal that they need something. And so we really want to talk today about uh, kind of how we can think about how to listen to those signals and kind of transform the way that we think about our responsibility as as a mind and what that means in terms of health and well-being, which has gone out the window in this country. I mean, you look at obesity rates, you look at addiction rates, you look at all of these things, we're abusing our bodies to a, an incredible rate. And so I think that's really what a, a lot of the goal was in a lot of my thought process with this over the last 10 years. But uh, it's not just this, this fanciful uh, speculative thing. I, I've tapped into a lot of pre-existing theories and in biology, uh, from cybernetics, like we'll talk about today, is a big one. Uh, but how all of these little things kind of build up into this hierarchical thing that we call the mind. Yeah, and you mentioned metaphors, and uh, <laughs> so our first, really, the the big metaphor that's going to kind of unite this whole conversation is the idea of the the mind, as you mentioned, as a form of a biological form of governance um, over the body and the cells being kind of the, the citizens of that body. And, uh, and then, you know, um, we're going to be getting into evolution and cybernetics. And so 
this will be a wide ranging conversation. <laughs> but on that first metaphor, um, you want to kind of get into that a little bit about what we mean by a biological form of governance and what we don't mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because um, I, I want you to realize that we're using a metaphor, right? We're trying to use some type of some type of analogy to get you to rethink and recontextualize the way that you see the role of the mind in biology uh, and how you relate to your body, right? But I'm not saying like figure like literally like your mind is a government. Like like we're talking about socialism or we're talking about uh, communism or whatever. We're not trying to draw those parallels because the the body biology is a lot different than human government. What we're trying to say is that there's very similar uh, types of control that happen both in society, in biology, in artificial systems. We'll get into a lot of that. Uh, but the whole purpose of using a metaphor is to try to kind of simplify these complex ideas into something that's that's more digestible, that can allow you to kind of formulate this new relationship with all of these, these different complex systems. And I think the really important thing when we're talking about metaphors is whether or not it affords us some predictive power, right? If we literally, if we take on the stance of like thinking my mind is this government to thing, right? And if it is, I have this responsibility to take care of my citizens, right? Like you would expect your government to have some responsibility to, to, to care for the health and well-being of their citizens. Uh, it should predict health and well-being outcomes. If you if you start acting like that, if you start taking on that responsibility, is that producing something meaningful? And that's kind of what we want to get at. Yeah, and, and just like, I think a, a good example of that, where if you're sort of thinking of your mind as this biological government over the the cells who are the, the citizens and the, um, the they form that collective, I think one way of thinking about this, uh, at least in my mind, is like emotional regulation partly comes down to regulating cells in your brain and body. It comes down to, you know, the, the feeling component of emotions, which we've talked about before on this show. Uh, the feeling component largely has to do with uh, your brain's perception of the uh, internal state of your body. And so when you're when you're using your mind to regulate feelings, you are literally, in some sense, changing the physiology of your body. You're changing the activity of cells, whether that's just brain cells or um, you know cells that are actually in your gut and in your heart and in your lungs. And um, so I think that's that's kind of one one example, of maybe what we're talking about with this metaphor. Yeah, and it all comes down to communication. It all comes down to, to information. Uh, we, when we're regulating our emotions, we are sending a signal in something like our conscious mind understands in like English or whatever it is. Uh, we're trying to formulate this, this image of, of what we feel right now and what we want to feel in the future. And we're trying to achieve that state. That's getting translated into different molecular communication, right? It's getting turned into hormones that are long distance, kind of long term messengers that go out to all of these different cells and say, say, hey, we need to change what we're doing because something in the outside world changed. The, the cell in the muscle in your bicep doesn't know what's going on in the outside world. The cell in your liver doesn't know what's going on in the outside world. The only access that it has to the outside world are the signals that it's getting from you. And that's kind of the important thing is, is 
trying to think of how we can formulate and visualize these things so that we can turn those signals into things that can be sent to our body in a kind of healthy and productive way. Perfect. Perfect. Um, and yeah, yeah. So I think like we, we are talking, there is like a, a, a literal sense of, of regulating your body with your mind. And that term regulation returns us back to the idea of governance and, and the fact that you are kind of uh, changing the activity of the body using the mind. And um, yeah, so I, I hope that that uh, metaphor is clear for people. And so it's going to, it's all going to rest on this idea of control. Uh, and I think that's a, a really good place to start. Uh, like I said, this is, a lot of these ideas are couched in, in earlier theories that uh, have been around since the 40s. Uh, and the, the most important one that we're going to look at is something called cybernetics. And don't get like turned off by the words. Every every time you hear like one of the older people that like studied cyber, they're like, I hate the word cybernetics because uh, it comes off as this kind of like computery type thing. Um, but that's not what it was original, originally intended to be. Uh, so I think we'll start. Why don't you introduce Norbert Wiener? Okay. Um, <laughs> oh, and yeah. So So cybernetics was basically founded by this mathematician named Norbert Wiener, um, who had uh, a crazy little factoid about him. He got his PhD in mathematics from Harvard when he was 19 years old. So uh, that's, you know, pretty amazing. Um, but uh, I guess I wanted to jump back and just, I found a couple useful definitions of cybernetics that I yeah, thought yeah. might be helpful for people to, to get a hold of these ideas. And the first comes from the, the dictionary, and it's um, the science of communication and control theory that is concerned especially with the comparative study of automatic control systems, such as the nervous system and brain and mechanical electrical communication systems. Yep. So that's one, one definition. And then there's been these, because of how uh, multidisciplinary and uh, wide ranging this, this field is, there's been a lot of different definitions over the years. And I was just looking on, on Wikipedia, kind of like a list of definitions from people who had studied uh, cybernetics <laughs> from different angles. And I found one that what really directly uh, uh, pertains to our conversation today, which comes from this guy, Gordon Pask. Um, and he said that uh, cybernetics is the science or the art of manipulating defensible metaphors, showing how they may be constructed and what can be inferred as a result of their existence. And that sounds a, like very different, but uh, I, I thought it was very yeah. interesting that the use of uh, the term metaphor there. And so the, the really cool thing, so Norbert Wiener, PhD, 19, he was one of the top six mathematicians in the world at the time. And this was 1940, so World War II was like just getting started. Uh, I mean, 1940s, not just 1940. Uh, but he was being tasked with trying to develop new weapon systems for the U.S. government, uh, specifically anti-aircraft guns. So at the time, they had these giant guns that they were trying to use to shoot planes out of the sky, but they were being controlled by humans. And they were really inaccurate and really expensive. And so he got together with some other people and they, they tried to they started thinking about this problem. They said, what we need to do is we need to figure out how to get this thing to correct itself. And so it's, 
it has this ability to sense what's in the air. It's sensing this, this airplane in the air. It's firing, but then it sees where it fires and it sees how far it was off and then it readjusts itself. So there's this negative feedback loop going back into the system of saying like, okay, I missed and now I need to correct. And then I missed again, I need to correct. Uh, and he started to see as he was developing these systems that these feedback loops are present in all of biology in all of these systems that have some type of goal-oriented purpose. And this guy did something that was really cool. He got together with kind of the, the tops of like all of these different scientific disciplines. He had like Margaret Mead from anthropology. He had psychiatrists, he had neuroscientists, he had people from like sociology, uh, like all of these people that he brought together. And it was like some of the top people in those disciplines. And that's really rare in academia. And he was trying to see like, okay, we're all in our own little silos studying our own thing. What is it that we're missing that kind of connects all of these different things? And what they really came to was this idea of control, that all of these different complex systems have these really similar mechanisms of regulating themselves, of, of having kind of a goal state and having some way of kind of sensing and reaching that goal state. And I think the simplest example of trying to understand this is the thermostat, right? You have this thing on your wall that's set to 72 degrees and it has an ability to sense the environment. So it knows if the environment is too hot, if the environment is too cold, but it also has a mechanism of altering its behavior if it falls outside of that range. And so, I want you to, to really kind of grasp onto that concept and how like how simple but how elegant that really is because that same mechanism is at play in every single one of the cells in your body that is homeostasis and yeah and and that's that's super interesting because that's the, an example of a, a negative feedback loop which is which is hugely important probably more important <laughs> than a, a positive uh feedback loop um but uh I guess just to just to kind of contrast what what a negative feedback loop is compared to a positive feedback loop, you gave the example of a of a thermostat where if it yep. drops below or it goes the temperature goes below or above the set point, it will um, change its behavior to reach the set point. But um, a positive feedback loop that I think probably all of us have encountered at some point is um, like just referred to as feedback in, uh, in like music in, you may have heard this when like a guitar player strikes a string on an electric guitar and the vibrations of the string converted to an electrical signal by that guitar's pickups. And that signal is sent to the amplifier, right? Which increases the signal's power and directs it to that, the speaker. Yep. And that produces a sound. But if the guitar is too close to the amplifier, the sound can cause the strings on the guitar to vibrate. And then those new vibrations are, go through that same loop. And then you get that screeching louder and louder and louder sound mm -hmm. that can actually, I think, sometimes like destroy the, the speaker <laughs> systems. So that's an example of a positive feedback loop where something is uh, kind of feeding on itself and getting bigger and bigger, uh, more and more powerful. And I think the most important thing to think about any of these feedback loops is that they require some type of, of, of goal state, right? Uh, so in the terms of like the thermostat, it's like staying at 72. In terms of like the guitar, it's, it's amplifying things, it's getting bigger, right? Uh, and there's a way of sensing the environment 
to make sure that you're you're actually doing that. Uh, and there's evidence of this all the way down to bacteria. Bacteria have been shown to have representations. They don't have a nervous system, but they have a way of predicting what the nutrient content of their environment is. So they have a goal state of what they want their internal environment to be like, and they have a way of sensing the environment to see whether or not the outside environment is conducive to what they're trying to do. And so what we really want to start thinking about through all of this as we start building all of this stuff up to the mind is that individual cells have, have goal states and they have ways of monitoring their environment to see whether or not they're in accordance with that goal. And they can change their behavior according to that. We have to think of cells as living things, as having some type of, of agency over their own behavior. Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, just to make that a little bit uh, concrete with, with your cells, even the cells in your own body, um, uh, an example of a negative feedback loop is that you'll probably learn about in, in a molecular biology context <laughs> is the uh, regulation of protein production in cells. So uh, sometimes when a protein is needed, a signal is kind of sent to the, the DNA, and then that um, section of the DNA is transcribed into mRNA, and the mm -hmm. mRNA is translated into the protein. So you go from needing that protein to um, producing that protein. But if too much of that protein is produced, right, if this process just keeps going, um, that same protein will sometimes bind uh, to the, the, uh, either the DNA or some, have some other mechanism where then it can shut off the production of that protein. So this is a, a sort of simple feedback loop that occurs in, uh, inside individual cells. And so what we're, what then kind of builds on top of this is now you have these individual cells that are doing things like these autocatalytic conversions, like Andrew's talking about these self-regulatory mechanisms, trying to achieve homeostasis as an individual cell. But then they're also embedded within large groups of other cells and they're communicating with those other cells. Right. And there's, there's, there's more than one way to control your behavior. I, as an individual self, I'm out on my own alone. I can move through the world and try to find what I need. But if I'm in a group of other cells, I can also ask the cell next door to give me what I need. And you start to see this collective nature of a form of communication emerging where each of these individual cells is trying to maintain their own homeostasis, but they're also part of this large collective and they're sharing resources, right? You have, uh, we've talked about this before on, on the show, but you have the, the first multicellular organisms. Uh, you had some that digested, you had some that protected, like not every cell had the same abilities, but they were sharing resources with one another. And when you look at it, it's not language, right? These, these cells are not using syntax and grammar and all of these things, right? But they are communicating with one another. They're communicating their needs with one another. I need more protein. I need uh, more protection. I need more food. I need whatever it is. And what you start to see is you start to see emergent goal states where each individual cell has its own kind of, I need to stay alive homeostasis, but now it's a part of a tissue. And that tissue is able to have kind of its own function. Like think of, think of heart tissue, think of liver tissue as a collective, that collective is trying to do something uh, more than just what that individual cell is doing. 
And it, as a collective, has a homeostatic mechanism of, of trying to see whether or not, okay, like, let's take the liver, right? The liver is measuring its environment to make sure that the blood is not toxic. It has a goal state of saying, I want the blood to be this clean. And when it sees things, when it senses things that aren't clean, then it says it sends off these signals, it changes its behavior, it starts to release different types of, of uh, molecules that break down those toxins, right? And so what we need to start thinking about is that every single one of these collectives of cells has a way of signaling when it's out of homeostasis. Right, right. And uh, like you said, that you get these these uh, larger goals uh, from these larger structures, um, and uh, those kind of have their own um, homeostasis that they have to maintain with with other organs in the body. Sorry, I just got distracted because I realized we have a few questions in the chat yeah, yeah, that yeah. we might want to address. Um, so Bruce asks, is the mind like a queen bee of a hive or other biological group slash individual setup? Um, again, that would be an, another metaphor, right? So the mm. mind, it, we could compare it to a queen bee. I don't know enough about like bee behavior <laughs> to say that, <laughs> that's the right uh, metaphor, but I could see what you mean that, yeah, it's sort of the uh, directing what's going on and... Um, yeah, that's about as much as I know about I, Queen No, Peace. and I think I think what we're what we're going to build up to, uh, and this is kind of a, a foreshadow of what we're getting to, is that when we think about the mind and its role in kind of this governance metaphor and biological uh, terms, it has to do with information. What kind of information it has access to, and that's kind of what I was hinting at with this idea of collective tissues having a way of signaling when they're outside of homeostasis. Because when you think about feelings, when you think about emotions, when you think about what the mind, what awareness has access to, it usually has access to the things that are going wrong or the things that are going really good. Uh, it's usually things that are outside of that homeostatic balance. When these collective tissues are good, when they're doing what, what they need to and they're sensing everything is fine, they're not sending signals that get to awareness, right? It's like if you're a CEO of a company, you don't want to know when things are going okay. You want to know when things are, are out of whack, when you need to step in, when you need to alter your behavior, right? And so as that, that top tier of this information highway, you look at what kind of access does a government and society have, or what kind of information does a government and society have access to? And they usually have access to the kind of culmination of what all of these different communities are, are facing at any given time. And they're, they're looking at what kind of threats are on the outside and how those threats are affecting what's going on the inside. And there, it's this coordination process. And so what I really want to paint a picture of is uh, the individual queen bee does not, to my, I mean, I don't know behavior either, but does not have access to a lot of the type of information that I'm talking about. I mean, their sole purpose is to, to make a bunch of babies uh, and to kind of be the focal point that the hive kind of collects around. But what the mind is doing is the mind is drastically altering behavior based on that information that's coming in. If there's a threat in the outside world, we need to completely change how resources are being allocated in the body. I mean, that's the whole fight or flight mechanism. We need to take resources away from the stomach. We need to send blood to the muscles, right? You think about a government when we're at war. We are taking resources from communities. We're putting them in the military complex, right? It's a similar idea. 
And so we really have to think about information that's coming in and how that information is being used to alter behavior. Yeah, that's that's perfect. That's really great. Um, okay, so uh, we've got a couple other questions here, but maybe we can get to those later mm -hmm. when we're we're more uh, into the evolution. Um, but uh, okay, so we've hinted at this idea of collective cellular intelligence. We've talked about how the individual goal states of the the cells kind of add up into the overall uh, goal state of the tissue and the organ mm -hmm. and the body, and that the mind only has access to kind of a, a rough approximation or a, a sort of really high level coarse grain view of all the changes in homeostasis that are happening at any given time. And then the way that the mind or you know the nervous system mm -hmm. in, interacts with this is to uh, change behavior in some way to make homeostasis more optimal. But yeah, sorry, go ahead. No, 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 yeah, yeah. I, I think that uh, one of the, the good examples I think that we, we skipped over, I think that might've been what you were going towards, uh, some examples of collective intelligence. Uh, because we're, we're, we're making an argument that there is this kind of intelligence at the cellular level and that it is kind of hierarchical in a way that you have these individuals individual cells, individuals in society that have their own goals, but then they're embedded within tissues and those tissues have kind of goals. But all of that, and same with individuals in society, we're in work groups or in these things, but the function of that collective requires communication between all of the individuals. And one of the really cool examples of this is morphogenesis, is the you have this, this tiny blastomere, this tiny cell, that then turns into this entire multicellular organism that is you, that is me. Uh, how do we get from this really small, just a couple of cells, to then all of these cells kind of knowing exactly what to build? Uh, and is it Mark or Mike Levin? Mark Levin, I think. Mm. Uh, <laughs> uh, but Michael, yeah. Mike Levin, that's right. Okay. <laughs> uh, his work is incredible. Uh, he is at the forefront of a lot of the, the really interesting kind of biological science around morphogenesis. And they're trying to use it to, to kind of cure diseases. Because if we can understand how the cells are creating organs, how they're creating hearts, how they're creating eyes, all of these different things, uh, then we can somehow tap into that and we can use that for restorative purposes. If salamanders that will regrow an arm, right? Why can't we do that? And what what is going on there? And he makes this really interesting argument that, you can say that it's all the DNA, that DNA is just coding for everything. And that's that's what's the, the kind of blueprint for the structure and that it's just kind of this process that unfolds naturally. Uh, but what they're really seeing is that DNA is just the, the recipe. It just gives you the proteins that you need. But the cells themselves are the ones that then have to build all of the structures with those proteins. And it looks like they're doing it through communication with one another. And yeah, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah. And it's kind of mind blowing. We'll, we'll link to this video um, mm -hmm. in the description, but uh, it's, it seems to be this like precursor to uh, neural uh, communication. The, the elect, the electro communic electrochemical communication that uh, really defines nervous tissue um, has an evolutionary precursor in other cells of the body. And so there's this 
this maybe kind of gets us into evolution, but um, yeah, I, that, that was uh, something that really blew my mind because I, I didn't really realize how important this sort of electrical communication was between non-nervous uh, cells in the body. And that's a really, really important thing to, to, to capture right now is that what neurons are really good at is communicating really quickly over long distances. But every single cell in the body has the ability to communicate in short distances with the cells around it. And they do it through really similar mechanisms to neurons. They're sending ionic kind of messengers between each other, and it actually produces electrical activity in those cells. And the cool thing that, that Michael Levin has been able to do is we in the neuroscience community have been able to kind of read neural activity. We've talked about that before on this show that it's called decoding. So we're able to just look at brain activity and kind of predict what it is you're thinking about. That's some of the work that I do. Uh, but I mean, it's, it's a really common practice with MRI and all of these things. And even with kind of rat research, with animal research, reading actual electro electrical activity between neurons. Um, but he said, why can't we use that same technique and try to read the electrical activity from cells that aren't neurons. And they did it during morphogenesis. And so they kind of captured this pattern of activity within these cells when they were building a heart. And then they were able to take that signal and inject it into the system and have the cells build a heart when they weren't supposed to, or build an eye where they weren't supposed to. And so it's not, it's not the DNA that's telling the system what to build. It's the communication that's happening between the individual cells that's doing it. And I mean, he goes a lot farther. Like I said, we'll link that video here because he even has these chimeras between like salamanders and frogs where like a frog doesn't grow new limbs, but the salamander cells will like recruit frog cells to rebuild something. So there's like this really crazy communication happening between different types of cells. Uh, and it's, it's just kind of painting this picture that we really need to kind of accept and approach the fact that that life has a sense of agency all the way down to the cellular level. And that even though it's not, it's not the language that we kind of think about, there is a way that they're communicating with one another. And this, this other really good example of that uh, is the, the planarium, the roundworm. This was like mind blowing when I saw this. Uh, so the, this is something that you can, you can cut in half and it will regrow into two roundworms. It will regrow all of its brain, all of everything, right? Um, and they've even shown that like, if you train it and train it, I mean, you can do Pavlovian conditioning with, with bacteria, but if you kind of feed it on a rough surface and you train it, that that's where it eats, you then cut its brain off, all of its nervous tissue, it regrows a new brain and somehow still has that memory. So like, it's not just the brain that is able to kind of retain memories. And what the crazy thing that they did was they put one of these roundworms in a solution of barium and the barium actually makes the roundworm's head explode. But then the roundworm grows a new head. Now in the wild, these roundworms have never experienced barium anywhere in their evolutionary history. Yet somehow their cells were able to turn on out of thousands of options, the like 12 genes that they needed to to grow a new head that was barium resistant. That's an example of collective cellular intelligence. And we really need to appreciate the fact that our cells 
are intelligent in a different way. They're not intelligent in this 3D world that we're experiencing, right? Of being able to use tools and communicate with language. They're really good at solving their problems. And this is a, this is a transcriptome problem. They, are, they were able to reach into their DNA and solve a problem that was new, that they had never experienced in their evolutionary history and grow ahead with 12 new genes that was barium resistant. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. And there's I think there's a there's an urge um, to kind of think of it like our own intelligence, like try to think yeah. of um, these cells and their interactions as what it would be like to to be a human. But the what is probably going on are really super complex physical, electrical um interactions that are allowing these solutions to to arise to these novel problems in ways that we are only just beginning to understand. Um, so I just wanted to issue that caveat because yeah, yeah. I think that's that's <laughs> definitely a common thing. No, it is. We need to we need to avoid anthropomorphism uh, to a big extent. And the, I think the the vocab word of the day is umwelt. Uh, it, and that's it describes the experience of being something. Like a bat has an umwelt. It, it experiences what it's like to be a bat. And we can't experience that because we're not made of bat cells, right? A cell, in my, in my opinion, probably has some type of umwelt. It probably has some type of experience of being a cell, of measuring the world, of trying to maintain homeostasis. And that that collectively with all of these other cells is kind of producing um, a lot of these hierarchical goal states that we're going to talk about. Yeah. And okay. So, so I think if that idea is, is pretty clear, um, we want to move into evolution a little bit and start talking about, you know, uh, how, how does this, how does evolution come into the picture? How do we, how do we, uh, talk about the nervous system in evolutionary terms yeah, in this context? I think we've hinted at it, uh, a lot so far, um, in terms of, what we really want to paint the picture of is is how we as a mind are interacting with all of this stuff that's going on inside of us and it's important then to kind of paint the picture of, of how we went from a single a single cell millions and millions of years ago to these really complex multi multicellular organisms that we are now and to kind of look at because one of the the metaphor that i'm using is this metaphor of governance right uh, and so we want to kind of look at are there parallels between the ways that societies evolved to the ways that an organism evolved? Uh, and there's there's really interesting kind of ways that you can think about this that that give you a new insight into what emotions and feelings might actually be. And so I think we'll start with like the single cell. Yeah. So so all life started out as a single cell. <laughs> Uh, Luca, the last universal common ancestor of all living things, was very likely something similar to a bacterial cell, and um, and so it would you know make sense why that is the first form of life to evolve. It's the simplest form of life that we know of, really, and um, it then eventually evolves into multicellular organisms, and there is this somehow there's there's an advantage there's some kind of evolutionary pressure to go from single cells to larger collectives of cells 
And what we've talked about before is the fact that you have to kind of suppress the individuality of the single cells to go to these multicellular multicellular structures and uh, start to have this um, collective behavior. And, um, and then eventually we get to the first kinds of nervous systems, which are basically structures that evolved to coordinate the communication and the behavior of these vast collections of multicellular or of, of cells, these multicellular organisms. So think about being kind of in this this early uh, this early environment with these single cells. Eukaryotes had come on on board, and they were <laughs> uh, they were predatorial, so they could eat other cells and things. And it was it was really advantageous then to kind of collect together into groups. Uh, and what Andrew was kind of hinting at, and something that we've talked a lot about on this show, is that there had to be this this thing where like. Uh, the cells on the outside kind of lost the ability to be able to digest because they were now kind of the protective cells. They created this, this kind of barrier around the ones on the inside. Then the ones on the inside kind of lost their ability to protect themselves, but got really good at digesting. And, at, and then there was other cells that were really good at transporting. And so they were sending the nutrients that were getting digested here to the ones on the outside that were protecting. And you started to see this, this community that was forming. And what you really have to, to look at is, I mean, think about kind of early civilizations, early like tribal communities are, are very similar in structure where each individual kind of able to do all of the things in the tribe. Uh, like everybody kind of knows how to hunt. Everybody kind of knows how to forage. Like they all can do their jobs. But as the society starts to get more complex, you start to have to really kind of differentiate. Like, no, those are the hunters. These are the gatherers. Like, uh, and one of the, the really important things here is that most of the communication is is one-to-one, -one, right? In that cellular community, in that early cellular community, all of the communication was just one cell to the, the one right next to it. Uh, and we have to, we're, we're trying to paint this picture of how information evolved. How the transfer of information because that was what andrew was kind of hinting at it was like why did why did nerve cells come onto the scene at all and it's because of the fact that if you have something going on on the i'm i'm on video if you're listening to this on podcast if you if you have something going on on the left side of the community uh then how are they supposed to tell all of the cells on the right side of the community that they're in danger or that something important is over here or whatever it is you have to have this long string of one cell telling the other cell telling the other cell telling the other one right uh and so this is where hormones came onto the scene and hormone transmission is is long range but it's really slow so you send a hormone over here and it's got this ability to drastically affect behavior of cells in a completely different part of this kind of multicellular thing that's going on. And think about that in terms of like different tribes then communicating with each other, right? Now you have these like, this is the region where you have different tribes in the region that are maybe at war with another region. Uh, and they need to signal to the other tribe like, hey, we're in danger. So they put someone on horseback or whatever it is. And it's this, this long range, really slow form of communication that does change the behavior of the other tribe, but it might be too late, right? And so that's kind of what was going on in these early multicellular organisms is that they were trying to figure out a way 
to react quickly so that they didn't get eaten so that they could take advantage of resources when they really needed them. And in order to do that, you need really quick transfer of information. And then that's where the nervous system comes in, right? Because it it is the thing that kind of defines nerve cells, neurons, um, is their ability to communicate really fast using that electro chemical communication. I can't get that word right. But um, that we mentioned earlier, this the action potential. I can't remember the the speed, but it's, it's super fast. Super fast. <laughs> it can transmit uh, a signal from one side of the neuron to the other, um, you know, all, like not at the speed of light, but it but extremely quickly. Um, so they developed. So there was these this cells that started to develop these faster communication uh, methods, techniques. Um, and that could allow for a simple, uh, system to coordinate the activity of the whole organism in a way that was a lot faster than just having this cell to cell communication or kind of hormones where it's just, you know, um, a sort of chemical gradient that's floating across the the whole uh, organism, but in this sense, or in this context, with the, the evolution of the nervous system, you've got basically wires kind of connecting uh, various regions of the organism, mm -hmm. so that they can start to sense their environment and react to it, but also just um, have this really fast communication. So the the first, I guess, to make this a little more concrete, the first. Nervous systems are thought to have evolved in the the cnidarians, but which includes jellyfish, mm -hmm. and they had yep. a very very simple nervous system that was basically what's called a, a nerve net or a, a neural net, and it's just where kind of all the neurons are connected to each other, and what it may have been for initially is a sort of combination between movement and uh, digestion because it allowed these really simple sort of jellyfish like creatures to contract, uh, which would and, and um, release and propel them forward. And at the same time, allow food to come into that, mm -hmm. uh, into their, their mouths basically. But that's just all to, to explain that, that what nervous systems were for was this, this large scale communication. And coordination. And that's, I think, the yes. yeah, yeah. Because I think one of the things that I think is really important to highlight is that every single cell, every single collective of cells, whatever it is, has two objectives, really, uh, to maintain its internal environment and to explore the outside environment. Because you only have so many nutrients inside of you, you're going to have to move at some point. And there's got to be a way to then sense the outside environment to see like where food is. But now you're also you also have predators. And so you have these these kind of two different behaviors that are emerging of I need to regulate my inside, my internal environment by trying to find things in the outside environment while also avoiding predation. And so you start to see the birth of the like the most primitive types of behavior, which are approach and avoidance. And I think that that is something that I really want you to sit with for a minute because every single one of us is still driven to a very large extent by that kind of dichotomy right there of things that we're trying to approach and things that we're trying to avoid. And they have this really rich evolutionary history in just like the really simple mechanism of trying to find food and trying not to get eaten. 
and we start to think about like a lot of these these disorders that we have with anxiety and uh and depression and all of these kind of things um a lot of the times fall into like in depression our our fight or flight mechanism is like at an extreme like we are just pumped full of cortisol all the time and it's this idea that like we've now turned on the avoidance system we've turned on the like oh, i need to i need to run away i need to hide i need to get away from something uh, and we're unable to then turn on kind of the approach side of things, of trying to explore the world, get out there. And, and when you really look at it, that's what a lot of these, these neurotransmitters were responsible for early on. Like dopamine was something that signaled whether or not we had enough nutrients or whether we had to go explore the world. And you look at how it's linked to behavior now, it's linked to motivational behavior. It's linked to, I have a need, I have a deficit, I need to go out and I need to get something, right? All of that's based on this really early stuff that happened. And that's this, what we're really trying to build up is that a lot of the feelings that we have, a lot of the emotions that we have are these early systems trying to send these signals of like, hey, I need something. Hey, I'm out of balance. And so, uh, Andrew painted this really cool picture of the, the early nervous system with the Nidarian. And the important thing with that one is that it was, it affected everything at once. It, it couldn't really coordinate behavior. It just kind of contracted and let go. And you think of like how a, a jellyfish moves. And it wasn't until you started to see bilateral animals that you started to see the ability to really kind of direct our behavior in a really coordinated way. Uh, and there's this really fascinating, we'll link some videos down below. Uh, Paul Chizik has these really cool explanations of how these behaviors evolved through all of these different iterations up until uh, mammals now. Uh, but you think about it, it's all kind of coordinated around this approach and avoidance type idea that you started to develop kind of this contralateral. So we have our right eye goes to the left field and the left eye goes to the right field. That's because that's linked to avoidance behaviors or when we were like fish, right? If we see something approaching us from the left, we need to swim to the right. And so a lot of these mechanisms are based on what do I need to sense in the environment and what do I need to connect to behaviorally to change how I'm going to react. And that's how all of these nervous system things are wired evolutionarily. It's I need to sense something and I need to change behavior. It's a thermostat, right? I need to sense where I'm at and I need to change my behavior if I'm not there. And that's what nervous systems got really good at doing. They got really good at sensing when there was something out there, or sensing when there was something inside, and then sending these really quick signals to change behavior, to get these things back in homeostasis. Yeah, so it comes back to this idea of feedback loops, of that the nervous system, you can think of it as this massive collection of increasingly complex feedback loops that uh, control behavior uh, based on the environment, especially for really uh, or simpler nervous systems. And then when you get to us, when you get to complex uh, creatures like mammals and primates, you start seeing that these feedback loops aren't just, you know, stimulus response, not just something happens in the environment and automatically changes behavior, but you have this cognition coming into the picture. You have, um, so built in uh, complex uh, behaviors, built in fixed action patterns. Um, so, you know, a, a, an, a mammal that might just instinctually be able to walk when it's born like a, a horse, um, you know, they don't have to really learn to walk. It's built into that system through this kind of 
a hierarchy of, of feedback loops and, yeah. um, you know. No, and that's, I think, uh, a really important thing to think about because we're, we're, so we're at this point, we kind of rushed the revolution a little bit, but uh, on purpose, right? Because we're trying to, to build up to, to kind of where we are now in these complex uh, mammalian species, these ape species that we are, uh, where you look at these early animals that we were describing, their goal states were really simple. You know, it was it was all just like movement and survival. Like that was what they were trying to sense. That's what they were trying to modify. But as you get more complex, as you get more and more social, you start to develop lots and lots of different types of goals. Uh, these different types of thermostats that are like, uh, am I am I in a good relationship with my with my monkey troop or with my my mate or whatever it is and that's a thermostat right now i have these attentional mechanisms that are like checking whether or not i'm there and whether i'm i'm not and what you start to see is that all of these different goal states start to compete with one another and you now are at the top of that right so so think about the mind as being at I like to think of it like think of these like medieval shows that you've seen or like Game of Thrones where you have the the ruler is like sitting on the throne and they have this long line of their constituents that are coming up that are saying like, hey, I have these needs. Can you help me? Hey, I have these needs. Can you help me? Hey, I have these needs. Can you help me? Right. And they're just getting bombarded with all of these things that need to be solved within their society. And that's kind of what the mind is. The mind is getting bombarded with needs from the body from the outside environment, right? And we are kind of the triage mechanism, ultimately. We're saying like, okay, I have all of the information. I know the state of the society. I know the state of the organism, whatever it is. Uh, I know our readiness potential. I know what kind of future things are possible. I know what happened in the past. And I'm able to put all of that stuff together to decide which one of these goals is the most important right now. And that's what we're constantly being bombarded with. Yeah, it's a fascinating way to think about the mind. Um, I guess maybe to make that a little more uh, concrete, like what what would you think of as a um, an example of sort of competing um, uh, feedback loops or urges that the mind has to decide between? Like just to kind of no, and this this gets into like affordance competition uh, models. Uh, you you have like like just think of some of these these different actions that uh, and they've mapped out a lot of these kind of movement uh, areas in like apes and in monkeys and things. There's lots of different ways that you can grab something, that you can approach something, uh, and all of those are active. All of those are like primed and ready. Like oh, I can I can reach and grab this berry, or I can climb to the next thing and get that. And you have to think that like okay, I'm. And I, I use the word affordances because what we're really doing when you really look at like frontal lobe and like these value regions, these identity regions, they're, they're all about trying to determine what's the most valuable. And so I have all of these different things that I can do, but now I'm deciding which one of them is the most valuable, which one of them is the most in accordance with my goals and with like what I need to do. And I think that that's a really important thing to, to really highlight here in that we are psychological creatures and we now are defining our goals and our needs in a psychological manner, right? We're creating these thermostats. We're creating what we want to measure and we're creating all of these competing goals. So when you think about like identity, right? 
I'm a husband, I'm a father, I'm a scientist, I'm a podcaster, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a this, I'm a that, right? All of those things are all competing with one another at any given moment. And you have to, you as the mind, as the triage of all of these different goals, have to decide which of them is the most important to handle right now that's going to result in kind of more well-being or health or whatever later on. And what we get caught up in, and this is, I think, coming back to how I opened this episode, is that we get really caught up in the, in the cognitive side of things and the psychological side of things. And we kind of neglect the fact that there are lots of constituents waiting at the door from our body that need to get taken care of, right? I need exercise. I need, I need detox. I need water. I need good food. Uh, and our body is sending us those signals. And we're not really listening because we're, we're really concerned with these artificial thermostats that we've created that I need to, I need to be recognized at work. I need to achieve some better thing in my relationship. I need to buy that fancy car. I need this, I need that. And you really have to start looking at attention as something that is what our mind is directing, right? Where it's like, you have all these different goals and our mind is deciding which ones of, are the most important. And that's what our attention is going to. Because we've defined like, no, the most important thing is to get a car. So ignore all of these body signals that are coming <laughs> up because we got to buy that Ferrari, right? Uh, and that's how you end up with burnout. That's how you end up with all of these things. And so if you really view yourself, uh, I, I like the reason I called my channel the Cellular Republic is because I think that the mind is this really elegant governing system that is in a way somewhat democratic. It has representation, right? It, it represents all of these different parts of our body and all of them are have some type of a voice if you can give it to them. If you actually take time to listen to the signals that are coming up, they do have representation. But what kind of leader are you going to be? Are you going to be this dictator that just like doesn't listen to those signals and just does whatever the hell he wants because he wants to relax and drink his margarita and his vacation home or whatever he's at, right? And just abuse your body? Or are you going to take on the sense of responsibility and say, like, I'm in charge of these trillions of cells. I'm responsible for their health. I'm responsible for their well-being. And I need to listen to them or else I'm a really shitty leader. And all your other goals will fall out. Uh, they won't it won't be possible to achieve those goals if the I mean, this kind of comes back to the sort of Maslow's hierarchy of needs kind of thing where, you know, at the bottom of the hierarchy, you have these physiological and safety needs. And and then, at, you know, higher up, you've got these social needs. And we've talked about where maybe this isn't the best model. But the point I'm getting at is, is kind of what Taylor's saying is the the uh, having these these co more cognitive, these more psychological goals, these social goals, these achievement based goals is not a bad thing. That's not what we're saying here, obviously. I mean, like doing this podcast is one of our, our <laughs> goals together. Um, and it's a very cognitive, very like, you know, high level type of thing. But in order to be able to do this, we have to be good governors of our bodies we have to and of our you know our relationships and everything builds from that level of being able to pay attention to what's going on in the body what the body needs you know also like th there's there's feedback loops between the different levels educating yourself about what is best for your body what's best for uh what you know why is exercise important why is sleep important um and and uh sort of realizing that you 
while you do have to triage things uh, in order to achieve various goals, your highest goals will not be possible without uh, paying attention to the, the sort of more uh, lower level biological, physiological stuff first. And, you know, I'm, I'm going to be human for a second and say that I have a lot of work to actually practice what I preach. Um, I've done a lot of work thinking about these ideas, thinking about the responsibility that I have as a mind. And I, despite that, get really caught up in daily life. I'm, I'm busy. I, I have a lot going on and I neglect my body a lot. I, I eat a bunch of crappy food that I shouldn't eat. I don't exercise as much as I should. I, I get cr not very much sleep. Uh, and it's, it's one of those things where it's nice to have ideas like this to fall back on, to, to realize like, I, I still have the ability to listen. I still have the ability to tune into that, to figure out what it is that I need to do to correct course. Uh, the word cybernetics came from the Greek word Kubernetes. I, I think I'm pronouncing that right, but whatever. But it it was a steersman of, of a boat. And the steersman didn't have to understand the currents of the ocean. He didn't have to understand how his boat worked or any of these things. He just had to correct course. He had to know where he was going and he had to correct course. And what we see, kind of what I see as kind of the role of, of the mind is to, to really figure out what that course is, to spend time figuring out what these individual needs are, spend time visiting the societies, right? Think about what you would expect. Like, would it be really cool if whoever was, was in charge of, of your society actually spent time trying to understand what your needs were, what you needed from them, what you needed from society, what you needed from a collective, uh, and spent time actually visiting you and actually listening to you? That's kind of what we're trying to argue is that if you view the mind from this lens, then you really start to see that like those meditative moments that we've talked about before on this, this show are really about spending time actually just sitting and listening and saying like, okay, yeah, I have all these highfalutin cognitive things. I have lots of them personally. Uh, and I need to just push pause on those for a minute. And I need to sit down and actually like pay attention to all of these homeostatic things that are out of whack and figure out what I need to do to put them back in balance. Yeah. And it's like, what is, you know, what is the, the overall purpose of that? Why, like, why are we advocating for that? <clears throat> I, I worked in the healthcare system for like five years and it is disturbing the amount of uh, like Alzheimer's that's coming down the, 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 the route, the amount of obesity that's out there, addiction rates, all of these things, we've, we've lost our sense of purpose and we've lost the connection that we have with our body. You look at a lot of like uh, ancient or not even ancient, I mean, even like 150, 200 years ago, a lot of the religions around the world had a lot of reverence for the body, had a lot of reverence for actually treating ourselves with respect. Uh, and I think that we, we kind of just see our bodies as this thing that we're just like, it's, it's a vessel that we're inside. And so we don't really have to care about it. But when you really think about it, the mind is created by all of these cells. Like you would not exist. You are an embodied cognition. Like you're not a brain in a vat or, or a mind in a vat, right? A brain is a bunch of tissue. It's a bunch of cells. And we have responsibilities to those cells. We have to drink. We have to eat. We have to do all of these things. And like, when you don't think about what cancer is right uh and this is again i'm using a metaphor this is not something that's literal but let's say you have this this cell in the liver 
doesn't know what's going on in the outside world, but it trusts you. It trusts its government. It, it says, you know what, you're going to do the right things. You're going to go out in the world because you can see the outside world. You're going to go out there. You're going to find the right things to kind of take care of us, to do our thing. But you are going out and drinking a ton of alcohol every night. And that liver cell is, is trying. He's like, oh, God, this is really hard. I got to detox. I got to detox. I got to keep doing this. And he works really, really hard. But he still trusts you. He still says, you know what, you're, I, I trust you. You're taking care of me. You're doing your thing. But if you keep doing that over and over and over again, there's a point at which that liver cell says, screw you. I'm done. I'm not going to be a part of your collective anymore. And I'm just going to go do my own thing and create my own community. And now you have this malignant tumor in your liver. Right. There's there is a communication. There is a type of relationship that we should have with our bodies that's based on care. That's based on us actually viewing our body as com being composed of living things. And they're all different living things. We have muscles, we have bones, and they all have different needs. And they're all kind of in competition with one another. And we're the one that's allocating resources to this one or to that one. And when you're stressed all the time, you're not giving your stomach anything. That's where I'm at all the time. My stomach sucks. Like I have crazy gastrointestinal issues. And it's because I'm constantly just like, what do I need to do? What do I need to do? Right? And it's it's taking those moments to realize how all of these these things fit together and to, to really think about what the signals are that are coming to you. Because it's the signals that, that are reaching awareness are the ones that are like important signals. Because if things were going okay, they wouldn't reach awareness. Yeah. Yeah. And there's there's so many things that we could we could apply that to, that same idea about the the liver cell turning cancerous or or otherwise you know, becoming diseased, like, we, you know, sleep, people talk about you can sleep when you're dead. And I, I think, you know, to be fair, in like recent decades, it seems like people are a lot more uh, paying a lot more attention to these things like exercise and sleep and nutrition, and it's becoming more mainstream, but there's still a ton of people who just don't care about the food that they put in their body uh, and don't care about uh, what they do with their body, what happens to it really. Um, and it's, it's kind of an illusion. It's this, it's delusional. It's this idea that like your mind is separate from your body, that you are this, there's this dualistic, uh, you know, remnant of history from, from all kinds of sources, from the idea of the soul being separate from the body. But you know, ultimately, one of the big things that we're talking about here that Taylor said is the mind emerges as a, a result of the collective activity of the biology. Um, so, you know, you, you can't separate these things. You can't sleep when you're dead, literally, and, and it will be detrimental to your well-being uh, to not pay attention to these things. Yeah. And I, I think we're at time. I, I apologize, George, that we didn't get to your question. I actually don't know the answer to that, uh, to uh, these. Is it a process that's a major evolutionary transition? Um, but we'll look into it. We'll save it for maybe an, an Ask Us Anything episode. Uh, yeah. I just, I wanted to say thank you. Uh, this this episode, I mean, this is episode 20. And this kind of harkens back to the very first episode that we did. Uh, this is something that I've wanted to talk about for a long time because it's something I'm passionate about. Uh, and it all kind of revolves around having control, uh, feeling like you're in control. And I know that's something that a lot of people feel like they lack. 
Uh, and so there's a lot of ways that you can, if you kind of embrace this way of, of seeing things, you are in control of a lot of things in your body and you have the ability to regulate, you have the ability to listen. Um, and I just appreciate all of you for listening and continuing to, to kind of tune in. Uh, I can't speak for Andrew, but I love doing this. <laughs> uh, I, so, I can't stand <laughs> So we, uh, if if you're willing, like we want this to be free to consumers, uh, but if you're willing to to help out, uh, kind of think about joining our our Patreon. Uh, it's it can be as simple as just like a dollar an episode, uh, but uh, every little thing kind of helps keep the momentum and helps keep us doing this. Yeah, exactly. Uh, just you know, if if you can like and subscribe and check out our our Patreon link in the description if you want to support us with uh, you know anywhere from a a dollar to a million dollars a month if you're feeling generous, but um, uh, yeah. And thank you, George, uh, in the chat saying, thank you. I really enjoy these podcasts. Uh, we love doing them and thank you for sharing them. We, we, that's, we so appreciate that. So thank you everybody for watching this episode of the social brain. Um, yeah. We'll see you next time. Yeah. See you for the next one.